Part One, Chapter Twelve of *The Secret City*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. *The Secret City* by Hugh Walpole. Part One, Chapter Twelve. About four o'clock on Christmas afternoon, I took some flowers to Vera Mikhailovna. I found that the long sitting-room had been cleared of all furniture, save the big table and the chairs round it. About a dozen middle-aged ladies were sitting about the table and solemnly playing lotto. So serious were they that they scarcely looked up when I came in. Vera Mikhailovna said my name, and they smiled, and some of them bowed but their eyes never left the numbered cards. Devar, Pidikat, Chetiriai, Zuraktri, Semdiset Voisim, came from a stout and good-natured lady, reading the numbers as she took them from the box. Most of the ladies were healthy, perspiring, and of a most amiable appearance. They might, many of them, have been the wives of English country clergymen, so domestic and unalarmed were they. I recognized two Markovitch aunts and a Semyonov cousin. There was a hush and a solemnity about the proceedings. Vera Mikhailovna was very busy in the kitchen, her face flushed and her sleeves rolled up, Sasha, the servant, malevolently assisting her and scolding continually the stout and agitated country girl who had been called in for the occasion. "'All goes well,' Vera smilingly assured me. "'Half past six it is. Don't be late.' "'I will be in time,' I said. "'Do you know, I've asked your English friend, the big one. "'Lawrence? Is he coming?' "'Yes, at least I understood so on the telephone. "'But he sounded confused. "'Do you think he will want to come?' "'I'm sure he will,' I answered.' Afterwards I wasn't sure. I thought he might think it impertinent when we know him so little. But he could easily have said if he didn't want to come, couldn't he? There seemed to me something unusual in the way that she asked me these questions. She did not usually care whether people were offended or no. She had not time to consider that. And in any case she despised people who took offense easily. I would perhaps have said something, but the country girl dropped a plate and Sasha leapt upon the opportunity. Drunk! What did I say, having such a girl? Is it not better to do things for yourself? But no, of course no one cares for my advice, as though last year the same thing, and so on. I left them and went home to prepare for the feast. I returned punctually at half-past six and found everyone there. Many of the ladies had gone, but the aunts remained, and there were other uncles and some cousins. We must have been in all between twenty and thirty people. The table was now magnificently spread. There was a fine glittering Father Christmas in the middle, a Father Christmas of German make, I am afraid. Ribbons and frosted strips of colored paper ran in lines up and down the cloth. The Zakuska were on a side table near the door herrings and ham and smoked fish and radishes and mushrooms and tongue and caviar and most unusual of all in those days a decanter of vodka no one had begun yet everyone stood about a little uneasy and awkward with continuous glances flung at the zakuska table 
of the company markovitch first caught my eye i had never seen him so clean and smart before his high piercing collar was of course the first thing that one saw then one perceived that his hair was brushed his beard trimmed and that he wore a very decent suit of rather shiny black this washing and scouring of him gave him a curiously subdued and imprisoned air i felt sympathetic towards him i could see that he was anxious to please happy at the prospect of being a successful host and to-night most desperately in love with his wife that last stood out and beyond all else his eyes continually sought her face he had the eyes of a dog watching and waiting for its master's appreciative word i had never before seen vera mikhailovna so fine and independent and at the same time so kind and gracious she was dressed in white very plain and simple her shining black hair piled high on her head her kind good eyes watching everyone and everything to see that all were pleased she too was happy to-night but happy also in a strange subdued quiescent way and i felt as i always did about her that her soul was still asleep and untouched and that much of her reliance and independence came from that uncle ivan was in his smart clothes his round face very red and he wore his air of rather ladylike but inoffensive superiority he stood near the table with the zakuska and his eyes rested there i do not now remember many of the markovitch and semyonov relations there was a tall thin young man rather bald with a short black moustache he was nervous and self-assertive and he had a high shrill voice he talked incessantly there were several delightful middle-aged women quiet and ready to be pleased with everything the best russian type of all perhaps women who knew life who were generously tolerant kind-hearted with a quiet sense of humour and no nonsense about them there was one fat red-faced man in a very tight black coat who gave his opinion always about food and drink he was from moscow his name paul leontievich rozanov and i met him on a later occasion of which i shall have to tell in its place then there were two young girls who giggled a great deal and whispered together they hung around nina and stroked her hair and admired her dress and laughed at boris grogoff and anyone else who was near them nina was immensely happy she loved parties of course and especially parties in which she was the hostess she was like a young kitten or puppy in a white frock with her hair tumbling over her eyes she was greatly excited and as joyous as though there were no war and no afflicted russia and nothing serious in all the world this was the first occasion on which i suspected that grogoff cared for her outwardly he did nothing but chafe and tease her and she responded in that quick rather sharp and very often crudely personal way at which foreigners for the first time in russian company so often wonder badinage with russians so quickly passes to lively and noisy quarrelling which in its turn so suddenly fades into quiet contented amiability that it is little wonder that the observer feels rather breathless at it all grogoff was a striking figure with his fine height and handsome head and bold eyes but there was something about him that i did not like 
immensely self-confident. He nevertheless seldom opened his mouth without betraying great ignorance about almost everything. He was hopelessly ill-educated, and was the more able, therefore, from the very little knowledge that he had, to construct a very simple socialist creed, in which the main statutes were that everything should be taken from the rich and given to the poor, the peasants should have all the land, and the rulers of the world be beheaded. He had no knowledge of other countries, although he talked very freely of what he called his international principles. I could not respect him, as I could many Russian revolutionaries, because he had never on any occasion put himself out or suffered any inconvenience for his principles, living as he did comfortably, with all the food and clothes that he needed. At the same time he was, on the other hand, kindly and warm-hearted, and professed friendship for me, although he despised what he called my capitalistic tendencies. Had he only known, he was far richer and more autocratic than I. In the midst of this company, Henry Bohen was rather shy and uncomfortable. He was suspicious always that they would laugh at his Russian. What mattered it if they did? And he was distressed by the noise and boisterous friendliness of everyone. I could not help smiling to myself as I watched him. He was learning very fast. He would not tell anyone now that he really thought that he did understand Russia. Nor would he offer to put his friends right about Russian characteristics and behavior. He watched the young giggling girls and the fat Rosanov and the shrill young man with ill-concealed distress. Very far these from the Lisas and Natashas of his literary imagination, and yet not so far either had he only known. He pinned all his faith, as I could see, to Vera Megalovna, who did gloriously fulfill his self-instituted standards. And yet he did not know her at all. He was to suffer pain there, too. At dinner he was unfortunately seated between one of the giggling girls and a very deaf old lady who was the great-aunt of Nina and Vera. This old lady trembled like an aspen leaf and was continually dropping beneath the table a little black bag that she carried. She could make nothing of Bowen's Russian, even if she heard it, and was under the impression that he was a Frenchman. She began a long quivering story about Paris, to which she had once been, how she had lost herself, and how a delightful Frenchman had put her on her right path again. "'A chivalrous people, your countrymen,' she repeated, nodding her head so that her long silver earrings rattled again. "'Gay and chivalrous. Bohen was not, I am afraid, as chivalrous as he might have been, because he knew that the girl on his other side was laughing at his attempts to explain that he was not a Frenchman. "'Stupid old woman,' he said to me afterwards. "'She dropped her bag under the table at least twenty times.' Meanwhile, the astonishing fact was that the success of the dinner was Jerry Lawrence. He was placed on Vera Mikhailovna's left hand, Rosanoff, the Moscow merchant, near to him, and I did not hear him say anything very bright or illuminating, but everyone felt, I think, that he was a cheerful and dependable person. I always felt, when I observed him, that he understood the Russian character far better than any of us, he had none of the self-assertion of the average Englishman, 
and at the same time he had his opinions and his preferences. He took every kind of chaff with good-humoured indifference, but I think it was above everything else his tolerance that pleased the Russians. Nothing shocked him, which did not at all mean that he had no code of honour or morals. His code was severe and stern, but his sense of human fallibility, and the fine fight that human nature was always making against stupendous odds, stirred him to a fine and comprehending clarity. He had many faults. He was obstinate, often dull and lethargic, in many ways grossly ill-educated, and sometimes willfully obtuse. But he was a fine friend, a noble enemy, and a chivalrous lover. There was nothing mean nor petty in him, and his views of life and the human soul were wider and more all-embracing than in any Englishman I have ever known. You may say, of course, that it is sentimental nonsense to suppose at all that the human soul is making a fine fight against odds. Even I, at this period, was tempted to think that it might be nonsense. But it is a view as good as another, after all, and so ignorant are all of us that no one has a right to say that anything is impossible. After drinking the vodka and eating the zakuska, we sat down to table and devoured crayfish soup. Everyone became lively. Politics, of course, were discussed. I heard Rosanoff say, Ah, you in Petrograd, what do you know of things? Don't let me hurt anyone's feelings, pray. Most excellent soup, Vera Mikhailovna, I congratulate you. But you just wait until Moscow takes things in hand. Why, only the other day, Makhlukov said to a friend of mine, It's all nonsense, he said. And the shrill-voiced young man told a story. But it wasn't the same man at all. She was so confused when she saw what she'd done, that I give you my word she was on the point of crying. I could see tears, just trembling, on the edge. Oh, I beg your pardon, she said, and the man was such a fool. Markovitch was busy about the drinks. There was some sherry and some light red wine. Markovitch was proud of having been able to secure it. He was beaming with pride. He explained to everybody how it had been done. He walked round the table and stood, for an instant, with his hand on Vera Mikhailovna's shoulder. The pies with fish and cabbage in them were handed round. He jested with the old great-aunt. He shouted in her ear, "'Now, Aunt Isabella, some wine. Good for you, you know. Keep you young.' "'No, no, no,' she protested, laughing and shaking her earrings, with tears in her eyes. But he filled her glass, and she drank it, and coughed, still protesting. "'Thank you, thank you,' she chattered, as Bohan dived under the table and found her bag for her. I saw that he did not like the crayfish soup, and was distressed because he had so large a helping. He blushed and looked at his plate, then began again to eat, and stopped. "'Don't you like it?' one of the giggling girls asked him. "'But it's very good. Have another pie.' The meal continued. There were little suckling pigs with kasha, a kind of brown buckwheat. Everyone was gayer and gayer. Now all talked at once, and no one listened to anything that anyone else said. Of them all, Nina was by far the gayest. She had drunk no wine. She always said that she could not bear the nasty stuff. 
and although everyone tried to persuade her telling her that now when you could not get it anywhere it was wicked not to drink it she would not change her mind it was simply youth and happiness that radiated from her and also perhaps some other excitement for which i could not account grogoff tried to make her drink she defied him he came over to her chair but she pushed him away and then lightly slapped his cheek everyone laughed then he whispered something to her for an instant the gaiety left her eyes you shouldn't say that she answered almost angrily he went back to his seat i was sitting next to her and she was very charming to me seeing that i had all i needed and showing that she liked me you mustn't be gloomy and ill and miserable she whispered to me oh i've seen you there's no need come to us and we'll make you as happy as we can vera and i we both love you my dear i'm much too old and stupid for you to bother about she put her hand on my arm i know that i'm wicked and care only for pleasure vera's always saying so but i can be better if you want me to be this was flattering but i knew that it was only her general happiness that made her talk like that and at once she was after something else your englishman she said looking across the table at lawrence i like his face i should be frightened of him though oh no you wouldn't i answered he wouldn't hurt anyone she continued to look at him and he glancing up their eyes met she smiled and he smiled then he raised his glass and drank i mustn't drink she called across the table it's only water and that's bad luck oh you can challenge any amount of bad luck i'm sure he called back to her i fancied that grogoff did not like this he was drinking a great deal he roughly called nina's attention nina ah uh, nina but she although i am certain that she heard him paid no attention he called again more loudly nina nina well she turned towards him her eyes laughing at him drink my health i can't i have only water then you must drink wine i won't i detest it but you must he came over to her and poured a little red wine into her water she turned and emptied the glass over his hand for an instant his face was dark with rage i'll pay you for that i heard him whisper she shrugged her shoulders he's tiresome boris she said i like your englishman better we were ever gayer and gayer there were now of course no cakes nor biscuits but there was jam with our tea and there were even some chocolates i noticed that vera and lawrence were getting on together famously they talked and laughed and her eyes were full of pleasure markovitch came up and stood behind them watching them his eyes devoured his wife vera he said suddenly yes she cried she had not known that he was behind her she was startled she turned round and he came forward and kissed her hand she let him do this as she let him do everything with the indulgence that one allows a child he stood afterwards half in the shadow watching her and now the moment for the event of the evening had arrived the doors of markovitch's little workroom were suddenly opened and there instead of the shabby untidy dark little hole there was a splendid christmas tree blazing with a hundred candles colored balls and frosted silver and wooden figures of red and blue hung all about the tree 
It was most beautifully done. On a table close at hand were presents. We all clapped our hands. We were childishly delighted. The old great-aunt cried with pleasure. Boris Grogoff suddenly looked like a happy boy of ten. Happiest and proudest of them all was Markovitch. He stood there, a large pair of scissors in his hand, waiting to cut the string round the parcels. We said again and again, "'Marvellous! Wonderful! Splendid!' "'But this year, however did you find it, Vera Mikhailovna, to take such trouble? Splendid! Splendid!' Then we were given our presents. Vera, it was obvious, had chosen them, for there was taste and discrimination in the choice of every one. Mine was a little old religious figure in beaten silver. Lawrence had a silver snuff-box. Everyone was delighted. We clapped our hands. We shouted. Someone cried, "'Cheers for our host and hostess!' We gave them, and in no half-measure. We shouted. Boris Grogoff cried, "'More cheers!' It was then that I saw Markovitch's face that had been puckered with pleasure like the face of a delighted child suddenly stiffen. His hand moved forward, then dropped. I turned and found, standing in the doorway, quietly watching us, Alexei Petrovitch Semyonov. End of Part 1 Chapter 12